Before I begin the message today, I want to take a couple minutes just to, uh, to clarify something and, um, and speak to something that uh, we've been hearing about, I've been hearing about, some people have talked to me about, others have talked to elders about, um, which I think is a, 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 mis, a misunderstanding and a misperception of something that I said in my sermon on August the 4th. In that message on August the 4th, I talked about the scriptures and our use of scripture and and um, I told about my own story, my own personal history and journey with, with the Bible over the years. And towards the end of the message, I said this. I said, it's not my job as senior pastor, as your senior pastor, to teach you how to know your Bible really, really well. It's my job to teach you to live a life of love like Jesus. So that has become a bit of a soundbite in a negative way. And... Um, and I think what some people believe they heard or or what they they think they heard me say was that I didn't believe in teaching the Bible and that I didn't believe that we as Christians should use the Bible or study the Bible or follow and believe the Bible. So I want to deal with that and kind of set that straight right at the onset. Uh, That was not what I was saying. That was not what I was trying to communicate at all. I would hope that everything that you hear me say Every word that comes out of my mouth, you should be able to verify by Scripture. And I welcome you to do that. I welcome you to be like the Bereans. I even said in that message that you should be like the Bereans who search the Scriptures daily, whether these things were so. My message was not about that. It was about our hearts. If if our hearts are hardened and we're critics and all those things, we're going to be trying to disprove what Kevin says rather than looking into it to say, Lord, is is this really what you're saying? There's a world of difference in those two approaches. But I, I believe very much in that. And I do. I, you, if you think there's anything that I'm saying that you don't think you can, that I can support by Scripture, come and talk to me. Come and ask me. Go to the elders uh, by all means. I, I, would, I would welcome that and I would invite you to do that. Here's what I am saying. And here's what I meant to say in that message. That studying the Bible is not an end in itself. And it is, it is that for too many Christians. For too many Christians, studying the Bible is the end goal. And knowing your Bible is the end goal. And what I am trying to say is, no, it's not. Studying the Bible is a means toward an end. And that end is Jesus. Studying the Bible leads us to Jesus. But more than that... Studying the Bible should lead us to Jesus being formed in us. If that doesn't happen, something's wrong. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what I believe the Holy Spirit has been impressing upon me and our leadership as a church and what we've been trying to say to one another. And I am more than happy. I am committed. I am dedicated to teaching you to read your Bible in such a way that Jesus is formed in you. But let's be clear about the goal. That is the goal. For many years in my life, that was not the goal. I learned about the Bible. I learned about Jesus. I learned about God. But I was still me. I want more for you than that. God wants more for you than that. And the Bible is given to us for more than that. In order for the Bible to lead to Jesus being formed in us, we need the Holy Spirit. He's the one who does it. 
That's what's new in my revelation, in my journey, is understanding the role of the Holy Spirit in reading and studying and, and, and living in Scripture. He is the author, the animator. He's the one who does the transformation. I've been learning that in my own life, and I desire to share that with you and, and encourage you to have the same discovery. It makes a total difference in your life. In the uh, master class, we're going to be using this book, um, Bruxy Cavey's book, Reunion, The Good News for Jesus, Seekers, Saints, and Sinners. Um, and Brian Carney and I are going to be doing this on Thursday or uh, Tuesday nights, and Wayne Mode and I are going to be doing it on Wednesday mornings because it's just a, it's a very basic study, but it just walks us through the really basic elements of what we believe. Uh, but it also deals with some of the misperceptions that we in the evangelical church have picked up along the way. And so it, it, it deals with those face-to-face. -face. It's a great study. We have 50 copies of this book, and uh, we'll be selling them at, because I don't expect you to read it by Tuesday night. Um, but the idea is that you can, you can get the book first come, first served, and then we're going to work our way through it uh, over an eight-week study. Um, and I'm looking forward to doing that with you. And I wanted to just share something with you that, that Bruxy says in this book on this subject. He says this. He says, Christians are eager to read, study, memorize, and meditate on the truth of the Bible. We learn all about Jesus from the Bible. The Old Testament, which is the Hebrew Bible, points to the coming of Jesus as a promise. And the New Testament, that part written after Jesus, records his life and teachings, as well as the early history of thinking of the first generation of Christ followers. The Bible is our best historical record of Jesus because it was all written before the end of the first century, just decades after the actual events. Christians also believe it is inspired and preserved by God to help his people know how to live. It makes perfect sense that if God was going to go to the trouble of incarnating himself into human form so that at least some people could see and hear his message firsthand, God would care enough to find a way to preserve and record uh, that incarnated revelation for the rest of us. And so it also makes sense that the Christians want to read this record regularly and meditate on its truth. But we do all of that not because the Bible is God's ultimate self-disclosure. We read the Bible because it is God's best God-given window through which we get a closer view of Jesus, who is God's ultimate self-disclosure. The Bible is not a painting to be looked at, but a window to be looked through. And through that window, we see Jesus. Christ followers believe in the inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word of God, and his name is Jesus. In other words, Christ followers are not really people of the book, as the Quran calls Christians. We are people of the person. We don't follow the Bible. We read the Bible so that we can follow Jesus. And there is a difference. That's what I'm trying to teach us. That's what I want us to learn. We'll start with this and uh, unpack it over the next eight weeks. And uh, I hope you'll come out. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I, I ask for your help. Because what I want to talk about next 
is so meaningful and so important, and I don't have words for it. I can't convey, I can't convey how much you love us and how you long for us to love you back. So as we open your word and as we look at the life of Jesus and how he loved you, Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes in brand new ways? Would you open our hearts in brand new ways? Would you open our minds in brand new ways so that we can see Jesus? And in seeing him, help us to see ourselves. Help us to see how much you love us and how you long for us to live a life of love in return. It is your best for us. So I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're into this journey of learning to live a life of love like Jesus. As I mentioned last week, we ended off in Ephesians last spring with looking at Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2 as the pinnacle of discipleship, as, as the end result of what Christian maturity looks like, to live a life of love like Jesus, a sacrificial life as we're going to see. We're taking from now right through until Advent to do that, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, to walk alongside of Jesus and look at how he loved And he didn't just set us an example, it's who he was. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's who we can become as well. So I want to begin today's message. We're going to look today and next week at how Jesus loved the Father. There are two great commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus embodied both of those. Jesus loved both of, or he lived out both of those. So this week and next, we're going to look at how Jesus loved the Father. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but it's been a fascinating study for me over the summer to, to do this study and to walk alongside of Jesus, learning how he loved. And I want to begin today with my conclusion. Here's the conclusion of today's message. An extraordinary life like Jesus, a life of faith, hope, and love begins with the love for the Father. It begins with the love for the Father. I don't know what kind of a father experience you have had. We've, you know, often we, we all don't have different, you know, we all have different ones, and some of them aren't, aren't great. Some of us had very poor father ex- expectations or, or experiences, I mean, and, and others of us terrible. Others have had great. I need you to think of the very best father in the world, and last spring that was Jamie Holbrook. Remember? <laughs> he was father of the year in the spring. I don't know if he still is, but... He was last spring. So we're, let's, let's just go from that jumping off point, shall we? Um, but, but we need to think of the very best father experience. And one of the reasons that I was challenged by this, one of the reasons why I say I don't have words for this is, you know, I loved my dad. No, not at the time, but I've come to love him. I didn't have a good relationship with my dad. I hated my dad. I couldn't wait to get away from my dad. And I know that some of you have had, have had even worse experiences than that with fathers. And it makes us hard to think of God as a loving father. Oh, we can, we can get it up here. But it's really hard for us to think of father if our own experience with father sucked. And dads out there, can I tell you how important it is that you represent fatherhood well to your kids? Because if you don't, 
you're setting them up for such a struggle with God. Such a struggle. It is such a privilege to be a dad. It's the closest human relationship there is to representing who God is. Think about that. It's incredible. So that wasn't my experience. I, I you know, as I've tried to, to, you know, parent, you know, Chelsea and Cameron, I've tried to be, you know, a good dad to them, but I haven't passed on God as father to them either. You know, we're all broken. We're, we're all, we, we're all terrible at this, I think, in some ways. Um, but we need to think of the best possible experience when we think of God as father. How did Jesus love the father? He knew that he was loved by the Father, but that the command isn't, you know, know that Father loves you and know that everybody else loves you too. The command isn't that. The, the two commands are love the Father with all your heart, mind, body, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It's the outworking, it's the living out of that love that we receive that the commands tell us to practice. So how did Jesus love the Father? I'm going to show you three ways today that he demonstrated how he loved the Father. And the first is this, he identified as the father's son. He identified as the father's son. How did Jesus know who he was? So our theology is that Jesus was fully human and fully God. He was God incarnate. And I don't know if you ever think about that, right? But if you do, it's going to blow your mind. Because... It's just, it, it is really hard to put those two together because we tend to maximize his divinity and minimize his humanity or we think of his humanity and we minimize his divinity. He's both. But he started as a baby. And the secret, you know, the insight that we get of Jesus as an infant, as a baby, right? You know, he didn't cry. That's what the carol says, right? No crying he makes. <laughs> he was like the perfect infant, Think about it. Have you ever thought of Jesus that way? Well, how did Jesus learn who he was? How did Jesus, if he was fully human and fully God, and I believe that when we look at the New Testament, the record, we see that he did grow in his understanding of who he was. The Holy Spirit was with him. The only passage that we have about him as an infant is in Luke chapter 2 where it says that he grew in strength and God's grace was upon him. So from the get-go, God was with him in a unique way, 100%. Because he was God's own son but he was still human. Do you know how Jesus found out who he was? From his mother. From his mother. She told him the birth story over and over and over again. As she held him, as she nursed him, as she raised him, she sang his birth story over him over and over and over and over again. And so his earliest thoughts of who he was were of his miraculous birth. And here's the grace with him part. He believed his mom. He believed her. From day one, he believed her. And he began to live out of that belief. Can you imagine? I mean, we're talking, I mean, he started out as a baby, a brand new newborn. He had to be two. He had to be a toddler at some point. Right? But he believed who he was from the very earliest telling of his birth story. We see the best example of this in Luke chapter 2, right? Or sorry, in Luke chapter 2, later on in the, in the chapter when he is 12 years old. 
when he's 12 years old, and we have this story here in Luke chapter uh, 2 in verses 48 and 49. This is where he's got, he, you know, they're at uh, Jerusalem for the feast, and uh, they, they all, the caravan goes back home, and they discover after they've been gone for three days that he's not with them. So they turn around, they go back, and they find him in the temple. You'd be familiar with the story. And his mother says this to him. She says, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He was 12 years old. Any 12-year-olds in here today? If you're here, be brave. Be like Jesus. Kennedy, are you 12? Chelsea's pointing at you. She's, she's saying this one. Oh, down, the, 12, the 12-year-olds are downstairs? Well, there goes that illustration. Man. Since when have the 12-year-olds been downstairs? Seamless. Anybody here 13? Kennedy? Kennedy, you're 13. Okay. Pretend you're a year younger. He was 12. He was 12 years old. Now, you know what? Again, here's the thing, guys. We read these stories. We read them over. If you've been a Christian for 30 years, you know this stuff. But we don't know it. We don't know it. He was 12 years old. And it was remarkable what was happening here. It blew everybody away what was happening here. And it's so telling what was happening here. Not only because he could give great answers and all of the teachers were impressed by his knowledge. And that tells you something there. You know, just between being a toddler and being 12, he'd learned a lot. He'd put a lot together. He understood a lot. He's 12 years old. Kathy Ribble, our, our, our children's pastor years ago, said to always, she used to always say, God does not give a baby Holy Spirit to our children. He doesn't. Our children can be Christians. Our teenagers can be Christians. They can be passionate and on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ, just as Jesus at 12 was passionate and on fire for his father. Well, there you go. He had good parenting for sure. But here's what happens. Look at this. He says to them, he says, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Now, here's the thing. Nobody calls Yahweh my father. Up to this point, this would have been blasphemy. The Jews did not refer to Yahweh as our father, much less my father. The only father that Yahweh was, he was a father to the king because the king was his son and he was a father to the nation. The idea that you would personally view Yahweh as your father was blasphemy. Nobody did that. He's 12 years old. And already... He's breaking brand new ground. My father's house, he says. That's crazy. But already he knew who he was and he was living out of that identity. 
Paul would later write to the Christians in Galatians 4 and verse 6 this, Because you are sons and daughters, God sent his spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, the double appellation. Abba, Father. Abba is the most intimate term in Aramaic. It's daddy is the closest we can come. But it's packed with so much intimacy. This is the term that Jesus used for his father in Gethsemane. Abba, Father, my daddy, dad. And it's packed with so much intimacy that gets lost in our, in our translation and in our busyness when we don't park there and dwell on it and think about what he's actually saying. Jesus loved the Father. He was his daddy. And up to this point, that was unheard of. And Paul would say to the Christians, you have that same spirit, and he's your daddy too. Do we believe that? Do we live that? Do we live out that identity? We spent a big chunk of last year looking at Ephesians and looking at who we were as the people of God, as his children. In Ephesians 2 and 3, those who are born from above, those who are are raised from the dead, and those who are seated with him right now in the heavenly realms. We looked at our identity. We are children of God. We are his sons and daughters. Do we believe it? Do we live out that identity? That's how Jesus loved the Father. He lived it out. He was the Father's Son. The second thing is that He embodied the Father's heart. He embodied the Father's heart. I tried to figure out how to kind of convey this idea too, right? Because I, don't, I just can't find the words. I'm not smart enough to find the words to really convey what I think this is trying to tell us. He embodied the... He knew the Father. And He mirrored the Father. But more than mirrored the Father, He lived out the Father. He, he showed us the Father because he knew who the Father was. But more than that, he knew the Father's heart. He, just, he didn't see the Father just as, as some sovereign God off there in the distance. Oh, he was that. But when you look at all of the things that Jesus said that point back to the Father, do that study sometime. That's what I did over the summer. Look at all of the points, all of the times that Jesus, whether it's in a parable or whether it's in teaching, look at all the times that Jesus talked about, about the Father, and you begin to get this picture of who the Father is in Jesus. And it's magnificent and compelling. I would sum it up this way. To Jesus, the Father is sovereignty extended in grace, mercy, and love. He doesn't diminish the sovereignty of God one iota, but he amplifies God's grace, mercy, and love over and over and over again. Look at the parable of the, you know, the, parable of the talents and the vine dresser and the returning king messages that speak of God's justice. And then look at the workers in the vineyard Right? His incredible grace. Look at the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. These all point to the Father and how Jesus understood the Father. And how Jesus showed us the kind of God the Father is. He knew the Father's heart and he showed us the Father's heart. I chose one example to share with you of how he did this. And it's in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 to 36. Where Jesus says, I tell you who hear me, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, 
Bless those who persecute you. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. We know that Jesus said that we're to love our enemies. Right? We know that. But why did he say it? Because that's who the Father is. Look at what he says here. He says, you know, then you're going to be, you will be like children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. What? The Father is, is kind to the ungrateful? I can't be kind to the ungrateful. And the wicked? Because he's merciful. And Jesus knew that. And that's why Jesus was able to say from the cross, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He knew the Father's heart and he, and he mirrored, he, he embodied the Father's heart. He lived out the Father's heart. This is how he showed his love for the Father. He represented the Father well in the world. Do we? Do we? Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Can people say that of you and me? If they've seen me, they've seen who God really is and who God, what God really is like. Can he say that of us? The third thing that he did was he embraced the Father's mission. Jesus embraced the Father's purpose for him. He knew his mission. At age 12, didn't you know I had to be in my Father's house? From the, from this, the youngest age, Jesus knew that he had a purpose. He knew he had a mission. And he was compelled to fulfill it. And again, if you look at the passages where this is spoken about, uh, Luke loves to use this phrase, I must. He uses it over and over and over again to talk about this sense of urgency. And here's a little bit of hermeneutics for you. One of the things that you, when we read the Bible... Right? Pay attention to the small words. Pay attention to the verbs. Pay attention to the details that don't really seem to, to be part of the story, but they add some color. Because what the authors are doing there is they're conveying to you their remembrance of Jesus, what they remembered. So when Luke says that Jesus says, I must, I must, I must, I must, I must, what he's trying to tell us was that Jesus had this sense of urgency to his life that they picked up on. And so when they describe the Jesus stories, they use language that tells you what they remembered he was like. And this enables us to get a full color view of Jesus rather than just a black and white one about what he said and what he did. We can learn who he was and who he is. And so Luke does this. And you know, in, in Luke 4, 43, he says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom. In Luke 13, 31, 33, I must keep going to other towns. In John 3, 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. In John 12, 26, I must bring other sheep also. In John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. In John 5, 17, 19, my father is at work and I am at work too. Right until the very end when he could say, it is finished. He was doing his Father's will. Next week, when we look at the second part of this message, we're going to see how Jesus and the Father were one. And Jesus could say, I don't say or do anything that I haven't seen and received from the Father. That's incredible. But this is how he loved the Father. This is how he loved the Father. 
He embraced the Father's mission. In John chapter 12, verse 23 to 27, he says, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son, to be the Son of Man to be glorified. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That was Jesus' heart cry. Father, glorify your name. He lived to fulfill his Father's mission. He lived to bring glory to the Father. This is how he showed love to the Father. So here's the conclusion. An extraordinary life like Jesus, a life of faith, hope, and love begins with our love for the Father. So love the Father. So love the Father. John 14, verse 31, Jesus says this, The world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Jesus shows us what the love of the Father looks like. Not the love of the Father, the love for the Father looks like. He lived it out. He lived out his love for the Father right in front of everybody. And then he says, now you go and do likewise. We who say we love God with all of our heart, mind, body, and strength, can we say we love God like this? Can you see why I'm, I'm, why I'm saying less of me and more of him? Because I don't have a whole lot of that in my life. I have a whole lot of Kevin and a whole lot of what I want and a whole lot of my dreams and a whole lot of living my life for myself as opposed to living my life for the glory of God. I don't know about you. But I suspect if we're honest with one another, you'd probably at least be in the same, if not in the same boat as me, you're on the same lake. What do we want to do about that? Do we want to live the rest of our lives like this? Is, is this what we want the rest of our faith to be like? Or do we want it to be more? Do we want it to be deeper? Do we want it to be stronger? Do we want it to be richer? It begins with our love for the Father. It begins with returning His love for us in how we live for Him. And you only have to be 12. If you're older than 12, this should be who we are already. This should be who we are already. For you and me to live as imitators of God who are called to live lives of love like Jesus who sacrificed and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering to God there is so much in that verse. Is it any wonder I want us to park on it until we get it right? Jesus showed his love for the Father in how he lived his life. And you and I must go and do likewise. So I want to give us some time to just think and reflect. Do you love the Father? And if you do, how does your life reflect that love? Let's think about that.